Are we ready? Good. Once again, I want to know, are we really ready? Good. I'm Kay, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everyone. If my voice drops, and you've had a hard week, and you want to sleep, feel free. Just drop off. If you'd like to hear a little more of what I'm saying, put your hand up and I'll get my voice up. Sometimes I get fairly emotional about the things that have happened to me and uh, uh, not necessarily uh, sad things, but just uh, they are important. And uh, in the beginning, that reminds me very upfront that I'd like to thank the whole committee, thank people Tony and Carol were responsible for the initiation of this, I think. I don't know whether to thank them right now or not. I may after I wet my pants. <laughs> but, uh, and then there have been so many people have been so good to me. Joe was my first call last night, which was just great, and then Heather and Sue, and they came and we went out, and, you know, those, that's what AA is all about. Um, each of you take one minute of my time my time up here, I mean, and look around quickly to someone that you haven't seen before, don't know or don't know that well, whether you're AA, Al-Anon, Alateen, or a friend, and turn and just shake a hand quickly and give your name and identify. Now I can go home. That's what it's all about. I came, I came to, and I came to believe. The stranger is the friend we haven't met yet. And that's really what it's all about. When I came here, I discovered that there were people here that I had never seen before. Some of you I may never see again. Some of you will be very important threads in my life from here on out because today is the first day of the rest of my life. This, is, um, this has been a beautiful program for me. I may not have a story that you can identify with. Don't worry about it. I may have a sobriety you can identify with. If I don't, feel free just to back off and turn around after this is over and look and ask someone else and you're bound to find answers to anything you want if you just keep looking. That's what they told me. I don't have anything new to tell you. I don't have anything that's um, a shocker or anything that's uh, a real, one of these great big doozers of stories, but uh, it's my story. And it may not even be what you heard from me before, if you've heard me, because I remember I was in about, um, oh, I guess a couple of years, and I heard a woman speak. And I said, wow, that woman, she changes her story. Every time I hear her, she'll do anything to get the crowd. And my sponsor gave me a kick and said, listen, lady, she's growing. Pay attention. (laughs) So maybe that's part of it. The other thing is, when I went to speak at a meeting in Toronto one time, we have a, the whole place was a small unit then with a lot of people, and I'm was prone to epileptic-type seizures, uh, 
after I, before I sobered up, actually. I had them for some time. And I was afraid that I would have a seizure and everybody would have to pass me over their heads. And, and uh, I said this to the girl sitting beside me. She was, she was a priest's housekeeper who, by her own story, which she tells, was a prostitute before she came to AA and uh, married a man in AA and they have helped more people through the years. They're a beautiful couple. But I didn't care much for her that day. When I said this to her, she looked down her nose at me and she said, Kay, this is a God-inspired program. There's never been a meeting that makes, that's been a failure. What makes you think you're so important that he chose you to be the one to louse it up? <laughs> so I remember that when I'm going to speak. I'm not going to louse it up for you. You came here with your own uh, sobriety in mind or the sobriety of a friend or a family member. And that's the important thing. And I want to thank the committee. I, they really have been just beautiful in their planning. The fruit that, that Joe brought and the, the flowers that the Alateen sent today really, really did the, the final touch today, I think. Are there any Alateens here? Stand up if you're here. Well, they're all swimming. <laughs> they're all good. I want to say thank you. You're very special people. I tried to phone my Alateen grandsons in Toronto to tell them about you, and uh, they're out busy right now, but that's okay. <clears throat> I'll tell them later. Um, my story is not a long one. And I don't tell the garbage can end of it. There's a, to come to AA, I had to qualify. And I knew that I qualified. But I'd been sober four times as long as I was drinking, so there's no sense my getting into it all because they gave me the fourth step and the fifth step of a mean, as means of cleaning my house. And they gave me the tenth step that I could continue to keep that house as tidy as possible. <clears throat> the, um, but to tell you briefly, and I, I will just say this quickly so that you don't have to do all kinds of jiggling. I came into AA about, uh, I came into AA June the 17th, 1953. And uh, I was about 31 years of age, I think. I can't add too well, but uh, birthdays get the first and the end of years and things so they all get muddled up but anyway I'm in my 40th year of sobriety and God willing it'll continue but we'll watch <laughs> and that applause is for your God my God and for you that's the only way I have that time a day at a time I came to AA a very end of the road, worried, sick woman. I had uh, grown up, if you can call it that, or grown no place, um, in a family where my father was a, a banker, a Scottish authoritarian, Presbyterian, and my mother was a little lady, United Empire Loyalist stock, who uh, believed you should be a lady. They both believed that little girls should be seen and not heard. And that education was the most important thing. 
I'm sure, you know, I very often have talked about the failure to love in our family. The love was there, but it took a different form, and it was difficult because my father was an alcoholic, and uh, and that's not taking his inventory. It's uh, it's a fact, and he admitted it himself at times. <coughs> in fact, after I came into AA, I found the big book in his library, which was really pretty special. Um, so through the years, as I said, education was important. And I attended something called Loyal Temperance Legion weekly. And that was a place where as children we went and raised our hand and we said, I promise not to buy, drink, sell, or give alcoholic liquors while I live. From all tobacco I'll abstain and never take God's name in vain. I had no clue what that meant, but I said it every week. And it took me, it took me until I was uh, almost 21 years of age before I discovered that uh, those pledges weren't all that great after all. That stuff I was taking the pledge about did some great things for you. So I added a few more little vices of my own to it and had a ball. <laughs> but I, I grew up as a very naive young woman. My parents didn't uh, share a great deal about development. They expected you to grow and to learn, and that was it. So that by the time I went to Vancouver to take nursing, uh, I was just about 21, and I had my first drink. So my drinking only lasted about nine years. And it was a very rapid, I, I understand that women are basically go downhill more rapidly than men. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I certainly did. Um, my drinking was, was fun to begin with because it was during the war and I got so that I knew who was coming in on leave and if, uh, I knew the different squadrons and somebody always would buy me a drink. If I, I learned what they told me when I came here that was nickel therapy. You always carry the amount for a phone call in your shoe and it was five cents in those days. But I always had 10 cents in my shoe because that was the opener for the first beer in the bar. And if I could get the first beer, I was off to the races. I wasn't even a clown in those days. So, uh, more later. <laughs> uh, but the, the drinking progressed very, very rapidly. I began having blackouts almost from the beginning. You know, when you wake up in Vancouver's Chinatown and there's two people on either side of you and you just sort of wonder, how did I get here? And it's not very easy to get that leg up and try to swing it over two bodies and get out on the other side. And that, that whole lifespan was, was hectic. I worked very hard when I worked and I played hard when I played. I, um, I got so that we would because liquor was rationed and the beer parlors closed early, uh, we'd go first to the beer parlor and then off to the nightclub and from there to, the, to Chinatown and then from there to a steam bath and from there, by that time, I didn't know what was going on. So, and then I'd crawl back to the residence in the morning and get over the fence somehow, get dressed to go to, on duty. And, and they, were, they were hectic times, but I thought they were fun, you know. I get up on the table in the bar and recite the shooting of Dan McGrew or the cremation of Sam McGee and play leapfrog over hydrants down Granville Street in Vancouver and Royal, in the Royal Vancouver one time I was 
slid down the banister and lit in my rear end in the lobby and the bellhop came rushing over, may I help you, madam? And I said, hell no, I always come downstairs this way. <laughs> but they were, you know, there were fun times and there were bad times because people were being killed. You know, you'd go and maybe say, oh, where's Joe today? And Joe was a sweetheart. He was a loner and he was the kind of man that many of us are. And so I related to him right off the bat. And the boy said, oh, he didn't return from a mission, but we didn't think you'd care anyway. You'd just say, have another drink for Joe. Because I didn't show my emotions. You know, we hide so much. We don't want people to know that inside we are really uncertain, frightened, fearful people. I'm speaking for myself when I say we very often, but I'm also speaking because others have shared the same thing with me. In fact, the night before last, I was at a meeting where we <coughs> talked about fear and insecurity. The, um, that drinking, I decided if I left Vancouver, it'd be different. So next came the travel cure, and I got on the train and unfortunately or fortunately met uh, three uh, Air Force officers and two nursing sisters, and we drank our way across Canada, got off in the middle of the country in Winnipeg to see if we could uh, get ourselves together. Everything was getting so disconnected and ran into the man I was engaged to who was coming back from England to surprise me in Vancouver, and I was going to East to wait for him and get straightened out. The whole world, my whole world in that time was that type of confusion. And to cut a long story, I, I came east, met another Air Force officer, decided I'd marry him, that would be easier, one after the other. And we married and he had nothing. You know, he was the complete opposite to everything that all the values that I had, the things that my family respected. He was a pathological liar. My daughters tell me he was an alcoholic. If it was black, he said white. And, you know, I realize today that man had such a background. It was a, that beautiful word. You guys have such neat words today. I wish I'd had them then. Dysfunctional family. That's what he came from. <laughs> I had to learn what those things are from you guys. I never heard of those things. You've got all kinds of neat expressions. And uh, so... His, his was a very mixed up life. He was a, an only child who was, uh, whose mother wanted him to be a girl, so she dressed him and made curls and everything else, and he wore, wore girls' dresses and everything for the first while, and she called him Beverly. And, uh, and <laughs> poor old Beverly. I used to say when I went, we've stayed married for 24 years until our daughters grew up, believe it or not, but that doesn't mean we were married married. I had a great time in the meantime. But, but um, when I would speak, I would always talk about myself as Phyllis Diller and about him as uh, Fang, because <coughs> I felt, I always felt I was a homely, freckle-faced kid, and I knew I grew up to be a homely, freckle-faced adult. And before I went in nursing, I bombed my year at university, so I also knew I was dumb. And uh, although I developed Korea at the end of it, which is rheumatic fever, nervous manifestations for those of you who aren't familiar with it. And um, I was a very sick woman before I went into nursing. But um, 
poor old Beverly, he stayed home channel changing and, and I went to meetings. Now it took me until a couple of years ago to realize that I have amends to make to that man. I really put him down so often and there were many, many good things about him. You know, regardless of what happened, he was there. He looked after those little girls so that I was free to go to meetings. He brought in money, which he couldn't do until I sobered up. And I thought it was because he couldn't hold a job because he didn't have enough sense. Well, I won't argue that one, but I won't comment on it. <laughs> but he did get a job and stayed with it right until the time he retired, so he must have been not too bad after all. <clears throat> and now he's got another wife who can afford him, so he's fine. The only thing is he's dying of emphysema and he's still lying about it because he says he doesn't smoke. He only smokes in the bathroom and nobody knows, supposedly. <laughs> Did you ever go to the bathroom after somebody smoked there? Same thing as when they have a drink there. We can tell it a mile away. Um, but it was, it was a good life, really, because in 1953, when I called AA, I had been nursing a man in Toronto four years previously. And they say that we never know where the seed has been planted. And we never know whether we're the only big book that someone reads. I had nursed this man who used to fly over from Boston, bombed out of his mind, land his plane at the island airport, come across to the Royal York Hotel, book in, and we would go to special him till he was sober and ready to go back again discovered something in the paper that was called Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I called the number to see if it might help him. And two men came, beautiful men. They had something in their voice, something in the way they spoke to him, and they said, we're going to take him out to a meeting with some other people. And he won't need that bottle anymore. You see, we weaned him off. So he didn't need it anymore, so I took it and went home. That was a great recovery. But there came a time when I realized I was the one who needed it. I was tired of being sick. I was tired of telling people off. I had these three little girls. I was terrified of what was going to happen to them. And I called, looked up in the phone book and called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now I had also called the only man I knew in in the city at that time outside of my husband's business and uh, I'd met him in a bar after I'd gone to see a psychiatrist in the town we lived quite away from there and we just moved to Kingston at that time and uh, this man came over to drink with me and I had gotten into my husband's bottle and gone out to replace it and replace some beer and I thought there's no sense being alone with this I might as well get him too <coughs> So I got all the vices together and we started for a good day and that's when I called AA. And Olga said, we'll, we'll come to see you tonight when my husband comes home. Well, I'm alcoholic. I said, I don't want you tonight. I'll be bombed out of my mind. I want you right now. She said, well, we'll see what we can do. And they came at noon hour. I don't remember a great deal about what she said. I know that what she told me made sense. I sat cross-legged in an old plaid dress that I kept for years in the midst of an unmade bed in an unkempt room and I knew 
whatever else she had, there was hope. And that hope I see in the faces here, that hope I found, I found everywhere I've gone connected with AA. And that was the gift that you brought to me. I was terrified. I was so frightened. But, you see, I, I didn't feel I belonged anywhere. Does that ring a bell with anybody? I felt as if I was different. No matter where I went, I didn't quite fit in. So when I went to AA and they showed me the 20 questions, I thought, uh-oh, they're not going to let me into this club if I can't answer their questions. So I went down, yes, 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 until I got to that one that said, have you ever been in an institution as a result of drinking? And I thought, ah, they're going to think I've been in an institution, and then they're going to say, she's crazy, we don't want her here, she's, she's, she's gone too far with this. So I said no to that one. Well, a little later I had to answer yes to that one too, and I got honest. But I was sure that you wouldn't let me in, and when I read that it said, if you've answered one, possibly you are alcoholic, two, you probably are, and three, there's not much doubt, then I was madder than hell at myself that I told you all these things about myself that I didn't need to. I only needed to answer three questions. So now I always read the bottom of a form when I fill it out. And you know, it's interesting, the other day I had to fill a form out. I, I went to, my doctor referred me to a specialist for hearing, uh, for a hearing test. And I went to see him on the day of the appointment. And everybody was dressed in uh, OR caps and gloves and masks and everything. And they said, oh, your appointment was put off. It's next week. So I went home and I looked him up in the phone book and they said he was, a, among other things, a cosmetologist. So when I went back, I said to the receptionist, does this mean that even if I can't hear, I might look better after I see him? And she just looked at me. So they gave me this form to fill out. And it said, have you ever, you know, I can't, I don't like forms anyway, and I can't be serious with them. This is rule 62, so it's okay. And it said, uh, have you ever had loss of memory as a result of a head injury or similar? So I wrote across it, I can't remember. <laughs> then there was a question, are you homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual, or otherwise? So I just wrote across it, it's been so long I can't remember this one either. <laughs> the doctor was a funny little, little German man and he came in with his head down and I thought, uh oh, is he going to blow? Well, he was trying to get his face straight. <laughs> And when he looked up, he said, it's your hearing that's bothering you, is it? <laughs> ah, but he, he turned out to be fun. He had a good time. Can't hear any better, but he was fun. <laughs> and after all, if you can't remember what the problem is with sex, then what's the difference? <laughs> um, as I came into the program, there were a lot of things going on. In those days, there was one meeting in Kingston. Today, there's meetings different hours of the day and every day of the week. But there was just that one meeting. So that meant that you had to hightail it wherever you could go to get to a meeting. And we'd pack a carload and away we'd go, whether it was 20 miles or 50 miles or 70 miles. And there was always a chatty meeting on the way there and a very quiet on the way back. Just every once in a while, someone would 
spurt out with some little thing out of their thoughts. But that's what our meetings are all about. They stir up these precious thoughts that we can hang on to and, and that, uh, that give us something to think about. And I never go to a meeting that I don't get something, even if I don't like the speaker. Afterwards, I'll speak to someone or someone will say something and I put it away and store it. It comes in handy later. And those are things my sponsor told me. In that first while, they just took such good care of me. There was a great big old sea captain called Russ Anderson, who's gone now. But Russ spoke at one of my first meetings about being at sea and, and uh, the tot of rum they got and how they got into dock and all the fights and everything else. And <clears throat> I went up to him afterwards and I said, because my sponsor said, sit still during the meeting, keep quiet, listen, and afterwards, any question you have, get up there and ask them. So I went to ask him how on earth he could stay sober with all that going on around him. And he said, Kay, as long as there's God and the big book and I, there's enough for a meeting. And the other thing is, and he put his hand up so I was kneeled against the wall while he talked to me, I'm going to tell you how to stay sober, young lady. If you'll turn your day over in the morning and remember to be grateful, go to whatever meetings you can, keep in touch with AA people, and remember to be grateful at night, I'll guarantee you've had your last drink. He's right. So far it's worked. And it's not all that complicated. Because for me, it's always been a very basic, simple program. You see, I, I can't quote reams out of the big book. I can't quote from all the speakers the things they've said, and I have listened to hundreds of speakers, needless to say, and I get such beautiful messages and such help, but I can't quote them back to you. I only know that for me, I absorb them and they help. When I travel on the road, which I do a lot, um, I <coughs> use a um, tape in the morning for a meeting, a tape in the afternoon for a meeting, and then I look in the directory and I find where there's a meeting in whatever town I'm in and I get to a meeting at night and that's how I met you people. That's how I, I first met Tony and Carol and Daryl. That was the, my introduction uh, to a meeting in Covington and it was a precious open door. And that's how it's always been. No matter where I've been in the world, that's the way it's worked for me. I've had to go looking for people. Now, after I'd been in about three months, a new girl came in. And in those days, there weren't very many women. I think there were three of us in the group after I came in. <clears throat> so the, everybody started getting her a coffee and paying attention to her and everything. And I thought, hmm, that's what they do. They hook you in, and then that's it. They find somebody else. So I said that to my sponsor, and she said, lady, you learned a big lesson. Get off your butt and help her. So that was it. And it wasn't very long before my sponsor shot, taught me another lesson about service. We, I'd gone a couple of times with her on Saturdays to listen to the penitentiary meeting because there were good speakers there. And they came from all over. And they would come by the carload. And they would divide up because Kingston is a penitentiary town. We have the the Big Pen and Millhaven and Joyceville and uh, Collins Bay and then the Prison for Women, which was the only penitentiary in Canada at that time that, that uh, women with two years or more would be sent to. So 
Olga said to me one day, I'm not going to sponsor that group anymore. I'm moving out to the country, so you're taking it over. And I said, I'm what? She said, you're taking the group over. She said, you don't have to do anything. You just be at the bus terminal when everybody arrives, have coffee with them, go to the meeting, come back. On Thursday, that's Saturday, on Thursday, you get in there and pick a topic and let the girls talk about it. Well, that was a very frightening experience to start with, but I didn't really think anything more than I must do. Whatever it was you had, I wanted, and I would go to any lengths to get it. I wanted this program so badly. I wanted to have that, that free smile that you had. I wanted to have that peace of mind I saw in the older members. I wanted to have that love that you could show so freely. So I, I said I would do anything. And for seven years, I went every Saturday and every Thursday the, to that meeting. And there were times when we would go to the big pen for, the, for the, uh, uh, their anniversaries and things. And over a period of time, I know many, many of the people who came out of those prisons. And it was so great. You know, you would have people that, uh, some of you know people like Pappy and, and, and others who spoke through the years. And this is a man who did, had a 20-year sentence, finally released and, and worked so hard at his AA program and caring for other people who were coming out and people behind bars that he received a Queen's pardon, which means that his slate was clean. And he, he's a funny little man like Jimmy Durante. Just great to have around. His stories were hilarious. And our, our living room and our kitchen table had AA people around all the time. My daughters had no uncles or aunts because my husband was an only child and, uh, and I had only one brother who was a bachelor. So my girls grew up calling everybody under the sun aunt and uncle. And, uh, and they were all AA people. So it, today even they, they ask about many of the people and they still know many of them and they follow up. But in the... Uh, in the program, I found that trying to work these steps, because I, <coughs> I came here knowing that I was powerless over alcohol, but long before that, my life was unmanageable, I admitted that. <coughs> and I knew that there was something wingy with me, that I had all these, thank you, excuse me. <coughs> Then I had all these um, seizures and everything. But I came to understand through my fourth and fifth step that much of that was related to the stress that I was experiencing. My first conferences that I went to, I would take people and say, now here, you write down what you hear, and I'm going to write down what I hear, and then we'll all get together, I was a great organizer, we'll all get together afterwards and share what, what we heard. And that's what we did, because I didn't want to miss anything. And my books and my notes are full of those things that, that I got picked up at those conferences from different people. And I can go back and read them at a time and just find exactly what I need. When, when I carry my big book with me, it's not because I'm going to read great excerpts out of it. It's that 
that's really my support. And when I would speak at one point, I would very often have a petty mal seizure while I was speaking. And so I just flipped the big book open and I paused for a moment and then I would say to you, um, I, I just lost track of what I was saying. But it says here, and I just pick up the first sentence that came in front of me and I carry on from there. God in his wisdom does marvelous things. I was so frightened when those things would happen. I was so overcome. And I, I, I just didn't know what the end result would be. That was his way, one of his ways, of letting me know I cannot afford to go out again. I may have another drunk in me. It would be a short one. But I don't have another recovery. It would be the mind that would go and nothing flat. Because by the time I came to you, I not only was a binge drinker, but I also, in those days, because the doctors didn't know what it was, they just thought it was something great to help people, they had put me on speed to pet me up, and they had given me dexedrine, and they'd given me phenobarb, and then they'd given me uh, almost anything else they could try out to see if it would help. So. I was on a good list of prescribed drugs by the time I came here, and I was like a yo-yo. So I can't afford that again. And today, when I, when I need something that will bring me down a bit, I just have to remember when and remember the gift I'm given. I'm given the gift of sobriety. When I was drinking, I used to say it felt Someday I'm going to have a little white house at the end of the road and grow roses. Well, I think maybe, I don't know, I guess there's not one or two of you here. I have a, a little white house at Preskill Park. And I bought that about 15 years, 12 years ago, I guess, as an escape. I would go from work and sometimes and just drive right down there. I live in Toronto a good part of the time. but. I would drive down to my little house down there, and it's about 50 feet from the path to the lighthouse. And there's a piece down there that's very, very special. It's a place where I can go when I need to find myself closer to my God, when I need to open the door to find the answers, or I need extra strength for things. And they've been very necessary. My Within about um, eight years, I five years, I lost eight of the people who were closest to me. And when I say closest to me, one of them was the girl that I sponsored shortly after I took over that prison group. And she was a manager of a women's store. And after I finished, after the speakers and everything left on Saturdays, I met with Betty and I told her the whole thing all over again because then it got back to me again what we talked about and she asked questions and we talked about it. So every meeting opened into other meetings. And then Shorty, a little man who came to my place with a man who'd done a 12-step call on him, brought him and I'd made a lemon pie that day and he said, wow, anybody who can make lemon pie this way, I'm coming back again. Well, he did. He came back every Sunday for dinner. He <clears throat> had all his Christmases and New Year's with us. 
He knew the coffee pot was on. Any time he wanted, he'd go out and have coffee. And he was just, he was a little man who should have been a jockey, actually. He wanted to do that, but he's, he's, uh, he was an orphan, and they, they refused to let him do it. And he had, he had one side of him that was a very angry man. He, um, with his resentment, which we are prone to sometimes, especially me, um, he had a grudge against a farmer, and he just burned his barn down. Finally, he admitted it and spent two years for arson. But that was just prior to coming into AA, and he never looked back for 18 years. And then my husband moved us to Toronto, and Shorty was very, very angry at my husband, and he went out again. You see, these, I tell these things because they're good reminders to me. I know what resentment can do because those around me have shown. I know what happens when my resentment builds up. The, my daughter was 28. She graduated from university, and she was two weeks from being married, and she had a cerebral aneurysm. And it was, a, it was on a Thanksgiving weekend, and it was a, a devastating weekend because it was so hard to know what to do. She had two top neurosurgeons operated, and they couldn't get the bleeding stopped. She was my youngest daughter, and, and I, she lived with me for some time after she came out of university. Um, and she was a hard worker and well-respected, and it was, it was given, you know, I, I found myself in the chapel saying, Dear God, you know, why not me? Why her? I'm ready to go. But it, God in his wisdom does such odd things. Linda was a beautiful woman. She'd earned her brownie points on this earth. I choose to believe that God had said, Lady, you're not ready yet. You keep working. You keep plugging away, and when you've earned your brownie points, I'll take you. And I know he will, and that's the way it is. The following year after Linda, he took my mother and then my father. And in that period, a man I'd gone out with over a period of 25 years, who also was a marvelous example to me. He was sober for 20 years, and he went to Chicago, and he thought, if I have a drink here, no one's ever going to know, and I think I can probably handle one. Well, three days later, he was found in another state, and he spent the next 13 years trying to get back to this program, in and out and in and out. He knew the big book. He could tell you the big book, start to finish. He knew the program, but he was constitutionally incapable of being honest with himself. He couldn't make that last step. And he would say to me, Kate, you don't ever have to go out again. I've gone out for you. And he was, a, he was a, an author, journalist, beautiful man. And I loved him dearly. And you see, God in his wisdom again gave me the chance to love, to know what love was. Not the kind of love that I would have chosen, the kind God chose for me, because I couldn't afford to be tied up. My mother needed help within a year. My father needed help for the next two or three years. I needed to be free to give them, to make my amends to them for what they had done for me. And it was all a very frightening thing, because I, I kept wondering, why me, why me? But I know 
that they've all gone over at the other side. I choose to believe they've gone to the other side to wait. And when I earn my brownie points, I'll be there. And then I found that things were heavy to the point that I needed a Rule 62. And I loved children, and I had been, during that time, I'd taken, I'd learned that what God has given me, I must use. That's my thanks to God. What I don't use is my denial of God. Each of us are given up to five, six hundred talents and skills that we can't even tap a portion of them in a lifetime. And I took my nursing and used it to transfer to different things. And during a period of time, I was a a supervisor and head nurse in Children's Hospital. And I went back during that period of time and took a course in um, business, just a short course. And the professor said to me, you should be in university. And I said, no, not me, I bombed it. He said, no, you should be. I said, not me, I've got three kids and a full job and everything. He said, think about it, Kay. I did think about it, and it worried me, and I thought a great deal about it. And when it bothers you, you told me, here, do something about it. So I thought, well, if I take a correspondence course, I know I'm stupid, God knows I'm stupid, and now the university will find out, but that'll settle. It'll be by correspondence. I won't have to face them. So I went back, did that one course, and I did well. So I thought, well, that's probably a come on. It's an easy one. So I tried another one. I didn't do too badly in that one. I did that until I got enough credits that I was able to take eight months leave of absence and go in and finish a Bachelor of, Sci- a bachelor of Science of Nursing. And then in my 40s, that was in my 30s, in my 40s I went back, did criminology at another university. In my 50s, driving after work a good deal of the time and, and uh, weekends, I managed in two years to complete a bachelor, or master's in science of education. And I thought, now, in my 60s, I'll do a doctorate. And then I thought, who needs a doctorate? I'd been a counselor in a college, professor for 17 years, and I wanted to... Uh, I knew I would be retiring, so I started about five years before to find out what happens in the world of clowning. And I went and took a course in makeup. Took a, the, it included something about costumes and a bit on balloons. Where's my balloon boy gone? <laughs> and from there on, I just had a ball. It has been the open door to the kind of love, not the kind of love that, that was the sexual love and all the complications that I was in in the first place. This has given me the open door to find the love in the eyes of a child. I was telling last night, I, I was doing some face painting, and a little boy sat down in front of me, and you know, we know what happens to these children. And he sat down, and I said, what would you like on your face? And these were inner core kids. And he said, a home. And I said, a home, a house. So I painted the windows and stairwell and big door to welcome people and little bushes at the side. 
And he just said thanks, and away he went. Face never changed expression. And then I was just devastated. I thought, I can't let tears come, this makeup. And a little girl came and sat down, and she was beautiful. She was as black as the ace of spades. And I said, and what would you like? And she said, I'd like to be Snow White. And I just great. So I gave her a nice white face and gave her a tiara and roses in her cheeks and long eyelashes, and she went away just bouncing. And, you know, I'm sure she doesn't want to be white again, but that's okay. And, you know, there's some of... There's some, something in every child that comes to me that's a lesson. I do the intercourse kids down in downtown uh, Toronto at the City Hall every Tuesday. And those children are so full of love. And there are times when I do the wrong thing, like uh, I squirted a businessman the other day and he turned around and said, if you please. And the alcoholic with all the insecurity went, whoop and I wanted to leave. And so I pulled a clown sad face, and he wasn't impressed at all. <laughs> so I went back a little later and apologized. But the fun of creating things with children and of having that fun with them is the gift that you've given me that I could have lost. I could have missed the opportunity. And every one of you here have some very, very special talents that you've never, ever used. And then God, when he did these other things for me, I had a daughter who married the head of a, a language department in a school. And he's a very lively young man, a little different, aren't we all? But he was quite happy. Loved my daughter dearly, which was the important thing. And, uh, and Peter, along with Di, because my daughter's always presented my medallions, he, w he asked to take, have her hand in marriage very formally. And he was going, went to her father the same at my 15th anniversary. He came back at my 20th, my 25th, my 30th. Each time, you know, when I was dropping literature around the house by then because he was drinking downstairs and he was getting into deeper and deeper trouble. And in 1990, I was all, or 18, 1985. Now, have I got that one right? Yep. I was all set to go to the World Conference in Montreal. And my receptionist said, aren't you off this afternoon? You're going somewhere. And I said, yep. But I'm just cleaning up a few things. And she said, well, you're stalling around. And the phone rang. And she said, I'll take it. If it's an appointment, I'll make it for Monday. And otherwise, you go your way. I said, no, I better take it. I took it with my daughter. And I said, Diane, where are you? By this time, she was an Al-Anon and had been for six months. And she was doing a beautiful job of love and detachment. And... Uh, Peter was becoming more and more detached. And uh, the, the uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, Di said, I said, aren't you down in, in holidays in Wolf Island? She said, no, we're right here. We're outside Toronto. Peter wants to talk to you. So much for I, Bill and Dr. Bob. I said, well, 
if you guys had your choice, would you go to celebrate 50 years of AA in Montreal or would you do a 12-step call? It wasn't much question. I got my message. So I 12-stepped Peter all weekend. He's just celebrated seven years of sobriety. And I had hoped he would be able to come today along with my own daughter and my old teen grandsons, but they unfortunately were tied up. But that, that's one of the gifts that I was given. God in his wisdom has been more than, than kind to me. And I have, through the years, found so many, many things that, that you've given me. But I guess the one little thing I'm going to close with is a precious little prayer. And it's called the prayer of a clown. Help me to create more laughter than tears, dispense more happiness than gloom, spread more cheer than despair. Never let me grow so big that I will fail to see the wonder in the eyes of a child or the twinkle in the eyes of the aged. Never let me forget that I am a clown, that my work is to cheer people up, make them happy, make them laugh, make them forget momentarily all the unpleasant things in their lives. Never let me acquire financial success to the point where I will discontinue calling upon my Creator in the hour of need or acknowledge and thanking Him in the hour of plenty. And with that, I want to thank all of you. You've been beautiful people and beautifully patient. Um, I could go on for umpteen hours telling you about clowns all over the world. I haven't gone anywhere. The north of Thailand, a young man in AA wanted to take me on a bicycle on his motorbike for lunch. They I went on a hay wagon to a meeting down in South America. There's just no place. If you're new, please turn around to someone before you leave tonight and hang on tight. The person you turn to will love you. Some of you, and I do know someone here who's had a sorrowful day, and I pray for you. And that's the other thing you'll find. We pray for each other. And in praying for each other, that's how we grow. And I say that because that's what you told me. It's worked for me. Thank you. God bless you. And just keep on <clears throat> staying sober.